Blog Talk Radio. You know, I just heard my Blog Talk Radio introduction, and all I could think of was, oh, my God, it feels like it's been six months since I've done a show. Frankly, it's been like three months since I've done a show. In fact, I was looking today, and I said to myself, my God, I don't do radio anymore. I do a whole lot of film and a whole lot of magazine work, and I miss my show. So, First and foremost, hello to everybody. It's been a very, very long time. Um, I want to give a few quick updates before we start the show with Danny, um, just because I've been off of the air for so long. First off, my apologies to everybody, whether that's listeners or people trying to get in and have their shows done. We've been having some serious, well, first of all, tech stupid, as in I not giving out the right phone number, which causes issues. And then, of course, a few issues on the blog talk radio side, which has made it kind of tough to do the last few shows. So my apologies to you folks that have been very patiently waiting to either get on the show or listen into the show. Uh, certainly not my intention whatsoever. Um, want to remind a couple people, uh, Art is Alive Film Festival, as we all know, has been completed as of the end of August. However, finally, I'm going to be able to update the website. The winners have been on this for some time, but all the different interviews and reviews and uh, all the different information for Art is Alive will be getting posted up, hopefully with any luck at all, by the end of November. Um, And then, of course, we start taking submissions. Yes. Yes, indeed. Not only am I going to be doing Art of the Live again with some modifications, which, of course, if you go to the social media page on Facebook, you'll see I've made some changes. Um, But apparently, courtesy of my dear friend AJ, who, of course, is one of the filmmakers that wanted the Art of the Live Film Festival this year, has come to me and decided that he would like me to uh, put his head together or my head together and actually put together some form of the Art of the Live Film Festival in India. Super exciting because I've never gone international before. So this is a super neat moment for me. So to you filmmakers that are listening, at the end of November, we will open up submission. This year it's a little bit different. It will be short <clears throat> shorts and features up to 90 minutes only. I also take youth films, I take web and TV series, and I also take music videos. We are starting out with the same flat rate as last year, which is $20 for early bird, $25 for the regular submission, and then $30 for the late fee as far as that goes. And again, it's Art of the Live Film Festival. If you go to Film Freeway, you'll note that I have, I believe it's during the last week of November, that we open up for submission. There are a bit of uh, changes as far as the new guidelines, so please make sure you either check the website or phone freeway on that regard. Flipping over to speaking of Art is Alive is in the Art is Alive magazine. To anybody who didn't get a chance to see my notes from the founder, which is me, I had to go ahead and post an update. Um, we've been having some tough times lately, meaning um, I have a staff of one, two, three, I think we're up to five writers now. And unfortunately, um, three out of my five writers, almost four actually, have had some personal situations to deal with. And, of course, in life, outside of a pandemic and a crisis, when things happen, things get delayed. Um, So what I've decided to do is to take October's issue and combine it along with November's issue, along with the product gift guide for November. So it's going to be one big smacking issue for November, which is October and November. And then, of course, for December, it's our big year-long, end-of-year sort of issue, and I have no idea what that's going to be yet, so stay tuned. But that'll be a nice big issue to round up the year of 2020. So for those of you who want to go ahead and check it out, it's www.theartisalivemagazine.com. Please go ahead and spread the word to your friends. Blog Talk Radio, as far as Sin's Chat Corner, which is what we're on now, I am scheduled for today's show, and then I believe I have six more or seven more this month um, because of the Thanksgiving holiday. Please go to Sin's Chat Corner on Facebook and check out my actual schedule. Otherwise, Blog Talk Radio, I will go ahead and update that 
quick reminder about Bedford Falls Film Festival. That would be the black and white film festival that I run with Michael. Please, please, please spread the word to anybody you might know. I'm having some serious struggles trying to find films for this festival. Remember, it is all black and white. can be any, any time limit. Michael seems to think that we don't need to cap the time limit on these films. So, black and white shorts or features of any length, newsreels. We could also take um, Weber TV as well as far as that goes, but it has to be at least 85 to 90% black and white. And, of course, the submission fee for that is a little bit lower, which is $15. If you go to Bedford Falls Film Festival on Film, Film Freeway, you'll be able to find out all the information. But if you have any leads, any information, anybody you can tip me off to, I will be eternally grateful if you can help me out because we're just we're getting submissions, but they're just trickling in. Um, the last thing that I want to mention um, before I get on to Danny because he's been so gracious to wait for me, the other thing that I want to bring up is, of course, um, we had talked about the live interviews I've been doing. Um, there isn't much that I want to say because what I've been doing is filming a bunch of different interviews that we are trying to get option for a particular network, so I don't want to jinx myself. Um, however, those will be put on the magazine site. Those will also be put on YouTube as well, so stay tuned. I'll have more details on that probably by the end of this month, but I didn't want to leave anybody hanging. So. Without further ado, you don't want to listen to me talk anymore. We want to get Danny on the line and listen to him talk. He's a phenomenal speaker. And, of course, I have to try to say his name properly again today. So let's get him on the line and start chit-chatting. Hi there. (laughs) That's a whole lot of stuff going on there. I'm laughing because of your joke about being able to say my name. Well, because I keep saying it all the time. Folks, if you were at Art is Alive, you would know this. I'm like, oh, my God, I have, like, anxiety about saying your name because it's so rude. Like, you should like, You didn't say the name right. You didn't get the You're name right, Cindy, and I'm like, okay, so. Uh, I know. From, you said it perfectly when, when, I, when I gave you the trick. Think Oshkosh Bagosh. That'll, give, that'll get you through. Oshkosh Bagosh. Well, that's very good. And thank you, by the way. Oh, my gosh. I'm so grateful to you. Poor Danny has been one of, like, three different filmmakers where I've had trouble. Judy from my father's fabulous funeral was a problem, too, where it's just been tech difficulties. And then I looked, and I'm like, oh, my God, I gave him the wrong number. So I appreciate your patience and being able to come on. Mm-hmm. You're getting me. Um, I'm a little overtired, so I think that's a good thing. That means I'll probably have more energy for you. And I have, like, a million questions that I didn't ask you at the festival, so I'm kind of proud of myself that I have new questions. Yay, go me. Um so the first question is, we want to talk about something very personal because uh, up until a couple of days ago, if you can believe it, it's the very first time I looked at your husband. I've never seen a picture of your husband, like really looked at your husband until three days ago, Edward. I want to talk about right. Edward. Um, let me tell you why. Because um, as I mentioned in Artists Alive as well, um, our personal partners are oftentimes a reflection of lots of things in our lives. So tell me a bit about Edward and my listening audience, who wasn't at the festival, of course. Tell us a bit about Edward, and then also tell me a bit about, um, in terms of his dreams in the future, are they going to continue to align with yours and you'll continue to work together over and over and over again? Or does he have separate endeavors he wants to do? Okay, so lots to unpack there. Um, let's just start with uh, Edward Elder. That's my husband. We've been together for 27 years now. Um, 
and uh, he helped me co-produce um, my first film, The Telltale Heart, which was at the Art of the Life Film Festival, and mm-hmm. it, the adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's short story as a musical. And he also played in it. He was my murder victim. Um, but um, <laughs> you actually do not see his face in the movie. You see his body, you see the back of his head, you see his hands, but... Um, but the face, because it is so vividly described by Edgar Allan Poe, I wanted to leave that to the audience's imagination as to what his eye actually really looks like, uh, the vulture eye of sure. the murder victim. So mm-hmm. that is why you probably did not see him. I don't know where you saw his face, probably on something I posted on my blog or something. I'm not sure. But yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so if you want to see his face, you have to uh, go to my blog because it's not in the movie. You only see his hair and his hands right. as he struggles right. to not be suffocated to death. Um, <laughs> I love you. Let me the, choke in, you. And then let me choke you again. Yes. I get it. Yeah, uh, I, I wrote a blog post called The Day I Murdered My Husband, and uh, it was fun. <laughs> so oh all God, of that. Um, that. Could, um, so uh, he's um, been sort of my uh, co-producer on our pr- uh, production company. We call it Frederick Byers Productions. Um, that is mm-hmm. a combination of our middle names. Mine is Fed- Frederick. His is Byers. So it's Frederick Byers Productions, um, and um, when I we were mostly doing theater productions um, in the New York theater scene, you know, he, he was always part of it with me, sort of, um, you know, the support uh, behind, you know, you know, me maybe being at the front of it, you know, also directing or doing whatever I'm doing or acting in it, but him always being a support to me uh, and to the production. So um, on the set of Telltale Heart, he was, you know, he helped out where he could. He brought in food. He went out to get the coffee or he was there for whatever errands needed to be run when he could be. Um, But um, uh, that is sort of, you know, and obviously, uh, you know, from any legal perspective, we are both co-producers together. Um, And that's probably how it's going to continue if... um, uh, the next film we make, it'll probably be similar. He will be acting in that too, and in that one, you sure. will be able to see his face. I will not hide him from the audience this time. But <laughs> again, oh, that's wonderful. That is, well, that's uh, wonderful. The, you know, the, the next, yeah, the next, yeah, the next poem, Musicab, is going to be the pit and the pendulum, and they'll structurally they'll, they'll be much that the two films have in common, but. Stylistically, there'll also be much that'll be different between the two, but but one of the um, one of the threads between the films is not only that I will be playing sort of uh, a one-person narrator kind of function again, um, mm-hmm. but also that Ed will be a, a sort of a, a important supporting character visually and, and okay. thematically in, in the film. So whereas in Telltale Art, he's my murder victim, and in the Pendulum, he is my rescuer. He is, he is the, uh, the man who saves or bursts onto the scene to save the um, protagonist's life at the end of the story. Anybody who's read The Pit and the Pendulum knows what the moment I'm talking about, um, mm-hmm. although there are some ways that I handle it in my film that are going to be surprising that I'm not going to give away here, um, but that'll be sort of a, 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 an interpretive um, riff on, on the original post story. So there'll be, the films will have that in common. They'll have in common 
um, that there's three cellos playing in them. Um, in, the, in the pendulum, there's the addition of a piano. Um, they will have in common that there will be more than one reality, one point of view. In Telltale Heart, there was the, the color narrative reality in, in the black room, as we called it. But then there was also the black and white um, flashbacks, if you want to call them that, um, or the callbacks to the story that is being told and how it might have played out. And there was the dialectic mm-hmm. between the two realities and where they agreed with each other and where they didn't. And there's going to be a similar uh, two-worlds two situation in the pit and the pendulum as well. I'm not going to go into exactly what they are, but they'll have that in common as well. But then there's going to be much that's going to be different between the two. And hopefully when you see the the pendulum, you will not think, oh, this is just like the other one. But you'll think more like, oh, this is quite different from the other one. (laughs) Hopefully, you know, but, you know, we're still uh, working on pre-production on that. Um, So we'll see. Oh, you betcha. I getcha. Ed Ed thinks of himself, you know, he's a therapist, psychotherapist. That is his main job. That is how he sees himself. Um, his idea of being a producer with me is is out of you know support you know supporting me um, supporting my work sure. and being there for me when I need him and how I need him um, and you know my fantasy is that uh, you know when this moves on beyond just self producing stuff but also you know getting into bigger and better things that he might you know continue to be uh, a part of the producing. You know that the Frederick Byers will grow into something more than just something the two of us are doing, but that that, has, that there's a larger entity. And when that happens, I would like him to be part of it. But uh, that'll be another discussion. You know, when when that happens, as to how much you know he wants to be involved, or how much he you know rather just stay the supportive husband. <laughs> you know, right now it's very much he's being a supportive husband um, in my endeavors as as co-producer. Um, that's that's the most important part. He doesn't consider oh, himself and you know a professional artist in that sense. He's doing it to uh, because he happens to be married to me, and I ask him to be part of my world. Oh, that's neat. You know, I have to ask you this because obviously everybody listening in knows that my better half and I work together and have a personal life mm-hmm. together. So here's the good question for you. Um, for instance, like you mentioned, he did Telltale Heart with you. So because you have that intimate connection, is it easier to direct someone that you're involved with? Because sometimes I find that, you know, I listen to Michael all the time, but every once in a great while I'm like, no, you need to do it like this. You know what I mean? So sometimes I think people assume that it, it's always working in perfect syn- synchronicity. But is that actually the case on a set with the two of you? Because sometimes I hear people say that like, oh, my God, they're not getting it. You know what I mean? Well, um, so far it's been really easy on set. Um, we've not been in a situation, uh, you know, where there was any conflict in that regard. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I also, <clears throat> excuse me, I also write, compose um, viola, piano duets for him for every one of his birthdays. Mm-hmm. So there's been. Um, 27 so far you know, over the years, <laughs> and um, so we play piano. We play those duets together, and then when we do, it means that he is playing something I composed. So it, it's in those situations that we've maybe had situations where I was a bit of a t- uh, like a teacher to him. You know, not that I'm a viola player, but I, you know, sure. I um, 
would uh, push him to play better, put, put, put more emotion to it, more fashion or whatever, or get the right notes, whatever. And then those were more tricky situations than anything we've ever experienced on set. <laughs> so uh, if, if you're looking for the moments where uh, being partners and artists together at the same time might have caused stress in the relationship, it's, it's mostly when we play viola and piano duets together. No, it hasn't happened anywhere else. Um, so, but... But we've gotten, you know, it's never been too difficult. And uh, but that's where my my uh, my perfectionism, you know, might have uh, demanded more of him than he is used to as a musician. <laughs> but it gotcha. made him a better viola player. The process. <laughs> so. Oh, nice! That is very cool. A yeah. viola player. I like it. Very nice. Yeah. Now, to those that are listening in, Danny is from Brooklyn, of course, or actually resides currently in Brooklyn, I should say. So most of us watch the news, of course, and I haven't been back to New York as of yet, obviously, but I always like to check in with everybody. Um, of course, I've read what the governor's now instituted, et cetera, and I can feel, without even being in New York City, the, the tense nature and, and the, the just the total frustration by tons of residents, business owners, et cetera. So how are you guys holding up and kind of tolerating this ever-changing pandemic that's going on personally and professionally? Well, um, I mean, right now, the changes that have been instituted, unless I've missed something, I haven't checked the news in a couple hours, um, are not going to affect us that much because – I think the gyms have to close by 10, and um, I never go right. to my gym that late anyway. And I'm just happy that okay. the gym is back open again, for example, as an example. Right. And the same with, uh, I mean, we haven't been going to bars and restaurants except maybe a couple okay. times when there's an outdoor seating. So we are sure. not being asked to tighten things up any more than than we have been living through these past couple months and we're, um, personally. Right. Um, I just hope that, uh, you know, that it doesn't get worse. Um, you know, I, I, I am more concerned for what I'm seeing happening in the whole country. I'm thinking that at least here in New York, um, at least once it hit us, maybe not before it happened, but once once we realized what we're getting into, we had a government that we could, you know, and a governor and, and mayor that for the most part – we felt we're trying to do the right thing by us, you know, rather than mm-hmm. elsewhere where that wasn't always the case and there was much more um, whatever. Um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I I was more concerned when I traveled outside of New York this summer than I was wow. being inside the city at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like once we had gotten over the worst in the spring in New York, you know, that we were sort of holding it together pretty well. And what's happening right now is an effort to keep it that way and not let things get out of hand. Whereas in other mm-hmm. places, things seem to be getting out of hand and that I find more mm-hmm. distressing. Gotcha. No, understood, definitely. And, of course, most people know, as you know, New York City is a hub for theaters and entertainment and, and plays and festivals and film, et cetera. It's tough. I talk to a lot of filmmakers lately that are just, you know, starting to lose hope. You know, when can we film and is it safe to film and, you know, will this be Yeah, I'm worried about that, too. About? I was just having a long conversation about whether or not um, we would be able to um, 
you know, as an indie production with a small crew, whether mm. we'd be able to put something up and when we would be able to do that and what the regulations sure. would be for us in terms of protocols and whether it'd be something that we would be able to manage. Right. And I don't have the full answer for that yet. I need to look into that sure. more carefully or closely. I'm not quite ready to think about that yet. I'm still in sort of pre-production stuff, but I need to start looking into it because if I'm going to plan for shooting, say, in March, you know, I need to uh, I need to get things in gear for that time. But the question sure. is, um, the protocols that exist now may be different by the time we hit March, you know. It, sure. might, get, it might get easier or it might get more difficult, and it's not something anybody can really know for sure. I can't expect, you know, the city to know for sure. Um, what they will allow us to do and what not. But there is shooting happening in New York right now. I just talked to someone who was on a set for three days, but they had to all get tested ah. ahead of time, and they were all right. tested daily as they got it. This was a big shoot, you know, a 100-person crew. So the big wow. productions, they have the money to institute right. the protocols to allow this to happen. And what I don't know sure. is what the requirements would be for a small crew of 12 or 14 people and where we'd be allowed to shoot and where not. Um, but my guess is there is, it, it can be done. You know, we just need to know what, what circumstances will allow. Um, that's, and I don't quite have all the answers for that yet, but I need to start thinking about looking into them. I figure by, December, I need to look closely, okay, what are they allowing and what are they saying and what are the expectations mm -hmm. for, say, February and March? And if it looks like it may be something that I can do, then I start, mm -hmm. you know, trying to find a production designer who can build the sets I need <laughs> and, and, and oh, setting gosh, dates yeah. and stuff like that, you know. But if, but I, I don't, um, that would be great if, if we could do it um, because then that means that, um, COVID has not stopped us from doing it, has not delayed us beyond what probably would have been the time frame anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm setting, I'm setting up studio space right now. I'm, I plan to go into the studio and lay down my vocals in two weeks or start that process. Um, sure. And, it, you know, and we will, you know, I will probably not be in the same room with the engineers. I'll be in the booth, and they'll be in the engineer's room, and we'll talk to each other that way, and that'll be safe, and that's how we'll do it. You know, there are... Um, it can be done. It can, and and with a number of variables to think about, of course. Uh, just the whole dynamic yeah. of doing anything is really different right now, certainly, without a doubt. Yeah. And I'm just glad that you're both healthy, you know, and safe, obviously, and doing what you need to do, um, which is all, of course, important yeah, for I mean, all of yeah, there is a difference between March and June or whatever. We we just stayed home for the most part, you know, only went out for grocery shopping. Sure. We didn't start getting tested until we got back from our trip, you know, but now we've been tested several times, you know, so that, that's a different life. So we're living a life that's a little more public now, but it also means we need mm. to make sure we get ourselves tested before we do anything. Um, we're, you know, it, it is just everybody who we're meeting in that situation agrees, okay, we get tested ahead of time and we all get our tests. We're good. Okay. We feel comfortable. And that's what we might have to do more regularly. So that, that's a different lifestyle um, weighing weighing the uh, the uh, situation, but I also feel comfortable be because at least a couple of months ago we were on the same in New York at the same level as Europe in terms of infection rate, 
And that oh, was sure. way safer than the rest of the country. Now, of course, the country is doing even worse. New York is, is, is worrying, and a lot of Europe is worrying and going back into lockdown because the rates are going sure. up. And what are you going to do? You have to do something. Um, but that's unfortunately, you know, uh, the situation. I had a theater piece of mine um, that was actually performing in a theater in Germany where certain theaters were allowed to actually have productions going on, which is not the case in New York, mm. you know. So I was feeling ah. lucky. But Germany's rates were going up, and they decided to close off theaters for the, for the month of November. So now it's not playing. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, damn. You know, yeah. my mother was going to see the yeah. show in November. She had it all planned out. It was all going to happen, and now COVID got in the way, you know. Oh, you bet. Oh, you betcha. Yeah. It's very demoralizing. The virtual thing is not as fun anymore, of course, and a lot of us like our live stuff, so I totally hear you there. I do. Um, but I was able to go to York. a live festival. Uh, the Long Island oh. Film Festival was live. It was small, and it was in a place called the Moose Lodge at Lindenhurst, New York, mm-hmm. Long Island. Um, mm-hmm. But they decided to not do a virtual festival, but do it in person, and they were COVID compliant, and People sat socially distant in their own little groups, and people kept their masks on for the most part. Not everybody, unfortunately, <clears throat> but uh-huh. for the most part. And um, even the big moose head that was at the top of the above the entrance had a big mask in front of it. It was kind of funny. Um, oh my gosh! Look <laughs> at that. Um, yeah, so, and I went there because I was like, oh, my God, I get to go to a festival that will be in person. I haven't been able to do that since February. You know, my film has been showing in a lot of festivals, but it's been virtual, and it's almost like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, it's not the experience I was dreaming of when I first thought I'm going to do the festival right. circuit for a year, you know? Yeah. But what you're oh, going to do, you know? Uh, you, yeah. you know, you you do what you can with what you got, and, and, and uh, other festivals said they're going to wait a year and hope to be able to do a in-person festival next year, but everybody said, but we're still going to show your film. You're just going to hold on to it. And so there's that happening as well. You betcha. So it is. It's good to hear that. And in fact, I was just going to say, I know that you attend NYU, um, and I wanted to talk a bit about that, education. Um, I'm a parent to uh, obviously a number of children. Fortunately, not all of them are in school right now. meaning I've got just two teenagers at home um, that are still in school. And so I want to ask Mm -hmm. a question because education is ever-evolving. So if somebody is listening today, let's say, for instance, and they're considering going to school for drama, um, like you did, and we're living in 2020 now, so the dynamic is a bit different, um, do you envision for the future um, education being even more crucially important because of the lack of education to some degree that we're experiencing now, meaning – is it becoming, will it become more vital, even more important than it was before? Gee, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know how, um, it, I, it's very possible that education will change because of the experiences that we're having now, and that there might be some aspects to this virtual education where people go actually this work. Um, mm-hmm. even for education, and that might open up doors for people and open up avenues for people to um, get an education virtually that that is more um, varied than we had before. Um, on the other mm-hmm. hand, there will be a lot of things where people, especially in early education, people will see 
you know, you you really can't replace the in-person, you know, touchy-feely aspect of actually right. being in the room. Education, you have to have that, and we'll and we will uh, learn to value that as well. Um, but um, I think it it won't be. So I think education will change, and I think it may be in ways that we have been able to um, uh, but I think people might also um depending on what their goals are and what they want to be educated in um, some people might realize it is not as necessary to go to a place to get what they need. Um, or they might realize maybe there might be ways to put together an education that comes from many different places at once. Um, so like a combination wow. of, um, I really want this class. There are not many people who are taking this class, but virtually we can get enough people together to have this very specific class. And why not do that? Mm-hmm. Why, you know, I, I go to this university, I do this and this in the buildings, but there's this one very specific thing that only I and 20 other people around the world really need, but we really need it, and we can do this virtually. You know, maybe that kind of mm-hmm. stuff will happen more where there's the hybrid idea of finding the good and the best practices of all options will be more available to us. Where we, sure. you know, we, we, we learn to value what we really need in in-person education, but we also discover mm-hmm. where the, uh, the virtual education has been um, useful. Um, and not just in education, also in, in our work relationships and business and stuff like that, um, that, that the culture may change um, around these experiences that we're having now um, in ways that might end up being beneficial or might end up being feeling less so. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. I think in terms of arts, acting, and, and all that stuff, that's... Uh, you know, I think if you're going for a degree, I think that's going to fall back more like to the traditional norms that we were accustomed to before. Because I think we need the in-person touch to be a good actor, to be to be to be a filmmaker, all that stuff. We we uh, uh, we need to work with people. We need to be in the room with them. We need to have that experience yeah. of the feedback a live person and, and seeing the work live done. But that doesn't mean that there's not ways that the hybrid or the virtual experience can't also enhance the um, the experience in the educational field. Sure, you betcha. I know that you yourself have been a teacher on and off for some time now, and I've taught before. Um, I'm not sure if you've been doing the teaching virtually at all because I've spoken to people and I'd like to get your take on this. You know, I've taught virtually before and I don't mind it because I've done it before. But for those that are used to the traditional classrooms and then moving to virtual, it's quite complicated for them. And because I know your field of study, I would imagine it would be very hard for you to virtually teach, would it not? I mean, I would think you'd almost have to be present to make that work. Yes, and um, it, it, uh, the work that I've done in the schools has been basically put on ice in the meantime, unfortunately. Um, because it, what I did, what I did in schools was work with the kids um, in the classroom to create their own original operas, their own original musical theater productions. They wrote them, they then rehearsed them, and they performed them in the classroom. And um, 
I suggested to the school at the beginning of the school year that there might be ways we could do this with a hybrid model or even virtually, and that I'd be willing to explore that with them. But they basically said, we don't have any funding for this anymore. All the money we have is just there to be able to do regular school. We don't have any money. So basically that was their way of saying, you know, not right now, you know, and I, so yeah, for me as a teacher in the school system, as a teaching artist, um, it's, uh, it's not happening for me right now. And I'm, I'm not feeling very confident about the future myself. Um, in terms of my private lessons, I also give piano lessons. Uh, half my students, uh, see me with mask on, you know, and we keep six feet apart and I uh, wipe off the keyboard every time. And then half my students, uh, I actually see via zoom or Google meets actually, whatever it is. But, um, and, uh, I'm able to give them lessons that way. So that I was able to continue. But also I had students who just said, you know, I'm going, I'm leaving New York, and I haven't heard back from them. Mm-hmm. You know, they did not opt to try to take up lessons uh, over, or virtually or, or, to, or to continue with the keyboard. You know, they just left, they just picked up and left town. So, so for me, uh, yeah, uh, lots more time to prepare my next film because I'm not doing half as much teaching as I used to. Gosh, what a shame. Let me tell you. Well, and the other thing, too, is because you – let's talk a bit about the actual composition of music because um, Mm -hmm. I am a writer. So, of course, my composition when it comes to composing and creating words and putting them on paper, I'm guessing is very, very different from someone like yourself who composes. So my first question Mm -hmm. relative to this is, how do you get colorful and creative? And even now more so, because I'm here to tell you a lot of my musician friends are frankly very depressed or feeling very dejected. And honestly, it's tough for them to even try to create or compose something that's original right now. You know what I mean? So how is your process um, continuing? I mean, how are you continuing to write or create music in this climate? Well, um, I had the, excuse me, I had the idea for Pit in the Pendulum sort of with me for a long time. And I had some basic musical ideas, like how I wanted to go about it for a long time, but I didn't really figure it out, like how I would adapt the piece until last November, during a time of depression, actually, because um, uh, there was a technical difficulties finishing Telltale Heart, and I was in a holding pattern for a month or two with nothing to do. And then, so I was like, well, what are you going to do? you got to just wait. So why don't you look at Pit and the Pendulum and decide, you know, you know, work on the next one. Just get ready while you wait. And then in that that feeling of, of holding pattern impotence actually fed in very nicely into the story of a guy who's put in a cell and is, and is awaiting his doom, <laughs> which is what the principle oh is. So, you know, it, it, in that moment, I, I read the, reread uh, the Edgar Allan Poe story, and I finally figured out how I can adapt it as a musicab. You know, I finally sort of ah. cracked cracked the code, so to speak, for myself. And I might not have if I'd been in a if I hadn't had been in that position where, you know, I wasn't in a similar state of mind as the poor, you know, lead character. He was feeling, you know, stuck stuck in a cell and and then awaiting his doom. (laughs) So anyway 
so, but that was then. And then I was like, okay, fine. I, I've got the idea. But then um, I figured I'm, I'm going to be too busy with Telltale and the festivals, which I was. And then COVID hit. And I was oh, like, God. oh, shoot, all the festivals are either being postponed or canceled or what right. have you. And I'm not going anywhere and I'm not teaching. What am I going to do? And so I went and sure. I, I actually wrote and finished um, Pendulum in, in rather short order. Um, in the spring. So for me personally, it became a time of composing and, and, fit, and writing the music and then writing out the score and writing the screenplay and doing all that. And um, it felt very productive to me. And, and, the, and while I was doing it, I was like, this is so ironic. I am writing this musical adaptation of, of, of someone being in a death trap, literally. Well, the whole world is in a death trap around me, and I'm in New York, where things are the worst. And, sure, um, sure. And, you know, one could easily, you know, say, oh, my God, COVID made you write this. But really, that'd be pushing it a little bit. It was just a coincidence more than anything, but a nice one, you know, for, for the storybooks, you know. Yes, while I was, you know, while we were all in lockdown, I... I decided to write the script, you know, write the score about, yeah. you know, really dark doings and and then doom and gloom and then a uh, person's descent into a private and physical hell. <laughs> like, oh my God. yikes! So actually, the writing of it was not um, difficult. The, the the working on it now and having to like learn my part and sing these lines mm-hmm. over and over again. I find that more distressing than anything because I have to constantly oh, really? put myself in the. Well, as an actor, I have to put myself in this uh-huh. mindset of a person who is um, staring doom in the face over and over again. It's not a fun place right. to be, and sure. and 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 considering the world we're living in right now, it uh, it doesn't you know it doesn't make life easier. <laughs> You know, like I'm not enjoying oh, no. that as much as the writing of it was felt invigorating and, and fun. The uh, sure. living it or performing of it less so. Gotcha. Understood. So the in actor fact, in me is, yeah, the actor in me is not loving the part half as much as the composer in me loved writing it. So there, there's that. <laughs> well put. Very well put. I was going to ask you, um, I know you've composed just several different one-act musicals. And so I'm curious because I, of course, have written something to set the stage, of course. Now, when you're composing a one-act musical, I've always been fascinated with this because I'm like, how do you cover anything in one act, let alone a one-act musical? So help us understand that a little bit, meaning um, composition, I'm guessing, for a three-act play is going to be different, of course, than a one-act, and as well as composition of a musical versus composing something that's not straight. You know, we think musical is complete music start to finish, so to speak. So... Talk to us a bit about what that experience is like putting together a one-act musical. Well, it was never about, um, I'm going to write a one-act musical. It was about, this is the piece I'm writing, and this is what it's becoming. And it happens to have this length. Um, So it was about finding the right, you know, just making whatever the piece is, um, what it needed to be. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, so, like, when <clears throat> like one of them is an adaptation of Herman Melville's short story, and it was 
it you know ended up being 50 minutes long and it, that was its length that's just the length it needed to be mm-hmm. um but when i had made did an adaptation of uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, mark twain that structured itself into a full two act evening you know like a traditional musical you know because of the choices yeah. that i made and how it fit together so um so uh, i um it, it, the choice is not going in, or oh, it's going to be a two-act, or it's going to be a one-act. Is what is the piece that we're adapting, and um, mm-hmm. what how, what does it require um, for for it to work? Um, what so that's it's, it's sometimes even like is this a musical or is this some a chamber opera or is this something else? You know, you know, you sometimes you then look at it and go, what is the form I am in? You know, and sometimes it becomes a hybrid because of the needs of the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that is more like the approach I take. Understood, absolutely, because most of us who are not, you know, composers like a layperson like myself is going to look at this and think. I see the automatic technical difficulties or just the whole, oh, my God, one act. And as a writer, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't get anything across in one act. So I'm always looking at it from that standpoint. So it's an interesting perspective. Out of all the musicals that you've composed, what's your favorite? Oh, you, I can't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you no. can. I hate it when people do that. Well, of course I can't do that. Yes, you can. It's like all saying, I love all my children equally. I do. There are some that I felt um, that I feel particularly proud of, of, of the work okay. on them. Um, yeah, where I also, you know, were, so there's a couple of those. Um, so I'll highlight. Yeah, but you see, then I start thinking of the others and go, yeah, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's. You know, there's like there's experiences that I've had where I feel like, oh my, like uh, the like the, uh, you know, where the experience of where you where I felt the most pure as a composer that I'm creating something musically that is really something special and unique and that I'm really proud of. Um, it doesn't mean that it's. Uh, I don't know. No, I feel like I'm just rambling. Um, I have a lot of children, and I'm proud of a lot of them. A lot, and it's very hard to single out one. Um, there are some that I th- don't think as much of, but I don't want to be as mean to even mention their names. But I'll tell you the ones you know, the ones that are particularly stand out. You know, uh, the Musicab stands out, you know, of course. Um, but uh, the the uh, recent musical I did, Speakeasy, The Adventures of John yeah. and Jane Allison in the Wonderland. I don't know if I mentioned that one before, but that's an adaptation of well, it brings together adaptation of Lewis Carroll's Alice's books, both Alice in Wonderland and Alice in the Looking Glass, but sets them yeah. in the roaring 20s of New York. And we have two Alices, a newlywed couple, John and Jane Allison, and they both explore their sexuality in the demi-monde of the uh, speakeasy scene of New York. So I did a year's worth of research when I wrote that one just in what was the queer subculture in New York City in the 1920s and what became of it in the 1930s when when there was a crackdown and that whole culture was destroyed. And 
that true history and some real people who lived that life and who existed then become threaded to the sensibility of Lewis Carroll in a magical realist adventure. Um, so the, in terms of my writing, in terms of creating a, a, an original book, um, I'm most proud of that because a lot of my musicals are adaptations or I am not the book writer and then I collaborate with someone else. This was one of the f- one of the few where I was responsible for the book, and it's an original book, um, uh, not a direct adaptation of you know Edgar Allan Poe that is very faithful, but an adaptation of Lewis Carroll that is very fanciful and goes its own directions and does its own things with it, um, and mm-hmm. that uh, has something important to say about our history and about what happened in the 1920s. So that's one that it can easily point out to as being one of the musicals I'm most proud of. And that is a recent one. Um, I am very proud of a lot of my literary adaptations of American um, literary masters. You know, I've done a Mark Twain musical. I've I've done a musical based on the works of Langston Hughes, um, as well as my Edgar Allan Poe adaptation. And those two alone are, are works that I feel, you know, very strongly about what I did there. But I also feel like rather than creating a whole new story. I just served in many ways the Twain or I served Langston Hughes and tried to bring their voice out. And I found dramaturgically ways, uh, unique ways to, to uh, what's the word, uh, organize their work. In, his, in Langston Hughes's case, it's his poems. Um, right. Uh, so I originally called it The Blues According to Langston Hughes, but that became a subtitle and now the piece is called I Too Sing America. And what I did is I, I read every single one of Langston Hughes' poems. He wrote almost a thousand. And I found uh, over 200 that I thought I could set to music, and I got the rights to them. And then 61 wow. of them, I, I took 61 of his poems ultimately and wrote uh, almost 40 songs. Um, that used the poems. So some 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 songs used more than one poem in the in how they were structured, and I also organized them in a fashion that they tell a history or a, reflect the history of America or the African American experience from the early 1920s to 1960, which is basically Langston Hughes's adult life spans that um, time period. He died the, the year I was born in 1967, and he started writing poetry in the early in the 1920s. Um, so it, the, the songs take you on a journey through time and also through the African-American experience from Jim Crow South mm-hmm. through the, the Great Migrations um, to life in the North, Harlem, and then lots of you know, the, the dream deferred, what happens to a dream deferred, that is a major theme in Langston uses a poetic output. So that becomes a big part of it. And that was basically Act One. And then Act Two deals with World War Two and deals with the civil rights um, struggles because he wrote about those too. But there's also love and there's peace and spiritualism because that was also part of what Langston Hughes had to talk about. And so I tried to reflect how I saw Langston Hughes's worldview and his concerns and try to organize them in basically a musical review that is through music for 90 minutes with an intermission. And I'm pretty proud of what I did there. Um, And also the music reflects the era that he lived in. Not, you know, that you, you hear 
echoes of the times that we're talking about from the 1920s to the 1960s and the times in between um, in the music mm-hmm. as well. So there's that. When it came to Mark Twain, um, I wrote a piece called Betwixt, Between and Between, and it's it's like my Rodgers and Hammerstein piece. It's very Americana. It is very family-friendly. It is full of just... It's just trying to bring joy and amusement the way, and Mark Twain's wit in, through the short stories that he told, as well as mm-hmm. an act two that is all a, as an adaptation of The Innocence Abroad. So act one is a journey through America, the American West, using a lot of stories that Mark Twain told, in like a, like a mm-hmm. bunch of skits or short stories, each scene, one or two songs structured around one of the stories. Um, ending with a 15-minute adaptation of a segment from Life on the Mississippi that is very autobiographical Mm -hmm. from Mark Twain. And then Act 2 takes all these crazy Americans on a boat and sends them to the Mediterranean and the Holy Land and and Innocence Abroad, and it becomes a story about the American tourist, 1865. (laughs) And that's it. And and there's not a lot of... um, you know, it, it, it is mostly designed to be musical, to be full of fun and full of enjoyment, and I consider it my Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, um, and I'm very proud That's of funny. it for that. Um, okay. Except Rodgers and Hammerstein didn't write a lot of songs in 5-8 and 7-8 and 11-8 rhythms. I do, but still, <laughs> you know, that said... <laughs> Even with all those crazy rhythms, it is very accessible and the most sort of, oh, this is so hummable kind of musical I ever wrote, you know. So there's that. Um, I must tell, I must mention this. Somebody, uh, this was a very good question I thought about earlier today, and filmmakers tend to have different views in general. And I know, of course, obviously you've been on the directing side of things, the acting side of things, writing, Mm -hmm. and, of course, composing. So here's the question. If you are making a movie, for instance, it, would it be easier to have all dialogue and let the, do you feel that the words speak to themselves, or is it possible to create an entire film solely made with music alone, just complete composition start to finish? Would it be just as easy to follow, do you think? Because there's a few musicians out there that have said to me, the music sometimes can make the entire movie, meaning without any dialogue whatsoever. A little hard to believe, but is it possible for an excellent composer such as yourself to do such a feat? Well, I actually think that is maybe what I'm doing with a pit and the pendulum. Oh, really? Even though, even though I am adapting post text, and you will hear post text um, spoken and sung. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it wouldn't be if if an audience when they see this film will not need to understand post text to be able to understand the film. I don't think knowing hearing the the I I mean I didn't think of this before until you asked this question but that the way this is structured musically and the way I intend to film it and, and edit it visually um that you do not need to understand the words to be able to understand this film. This film will not need subtitles if you don't speak English. And in addition to Poe, I am also uh, I am also adapting um, the Dies Irae poem. Um, Dies, you know, the the Day of Destruction, Day of Death, the the, the apocalyptic uh, poem that yeah. is often used in yeah. requiems. 
And it is yeah. becoming sort of, so it is almost as important a text for the film as the original Edgar Allan Poe. And the reason I'm doing it is because Poe's short story starts with a quote from Latin um, that he doesn't translate himself. I had to look up the translation mm-hmm. as to what this text was about. And that inspired me to have sort of a license to have characters in my adaptation actually sing Latin and use the DSCDA text as a as a basis. I actually had to write lyrics in Latin. I do not speak Latin. I had to sort of, you know, figure it oh, out. Yeah. And I, I, had, I luckily have a friend in Germany who was pretty good in Latin, and he helped make sure that my Latin was accurate or where it wasn't, that he would help me figure out how to make it accurate because I had to make up my own Latin. I, I couldn't just copy the original DCLA. I had to write my own additions to the poem. Um, and I, even now I'm thinking, do I need to subtitle this or do I not? How much do I subtitle the Latin? And as I'm, I don't have the answer to that yet. I'll, I'll figure that out in the editing afterwards. You know, now it's too early to be certain about this. But as you ask me that question, I realize that, you do not need to understand a word of the English or the Latin to be able to follow the film. I am almost certain of it that the film will not require you to understand either language need or have need any of the subtitles to have a full understanding of what's going on. You Look wouldn't miss much. Look at that. That's awesome. And I, I like that. I like the, the music. It's also visual storytelling. Uh, I'll tell you a great story. Um, you know the Chinese um, director Zhang Yimou. Yes. Uh, he directed Hero and House of Flying Daggers, and yeah. Yes. Well, when I was um, in college at NYU, we had a. I was part of a program that took me to China. A bunch of uh, art students from the Tisch School of the Arts. We were allowed to go to China. This was eighteen nine, I'm not that old. Nineteen eighty nine. Okay. Um, 1989. This was, this was like two months before Tiananmen Square happened, and at, so at that point, it was very open to visitors, and it, it felt like it was, this country was liberalizing and becoming more free. We did not have any inkling of the horrors of Tiananmen Square and the, sh- and the, the lockdown, the shutdown of freedoms that were about to come in China. At that time, it looked like things were getting, you know, more open to the West and more free, and sure. we. Uh, uh, we visited the film production um, studios in Xi'an, in the center of China. It's like their Hollywood, the major film production studios. And we got to meet Zhang Yimou and Gong Li, the actress who had just oh made one. Of, they had just made their first film, Red Sorghum, at that point. Ah. And I had heard that okay. it had won the prize in the Berlin Film Festival because I grew up in Berlin, Germany. So. I checked. Right. I had heard of the news, so I knew that oh, this was a big deal. But he had, she was just at the beginning of his really illustrious career to come. This was, that was his first film, and we got to meet him, and we got to meet her, and uh, he sang a little Chinese folk tune to us, and I sang "Amazing Grace" to him. It was great. And then oh my we were allowed, I know it was wonderful. And then we were allowed. We were brought into a screening room, and they showed us Red Sorghum, the movie. Without uh-huh. subtitles. It had no subtitles. Oh it was in Chinese. And at first we panicked. We're like, oh, no, we're not going to understand a thing. Sure. But he is such a good visual storyteller that even though we had no subtitles and there were some scenes where we were just like, I have no idea what people are talking about, 
for the most sure. part, 90% of the film, we, had, we could follow the story, and none of us felt you know, frustrated by the end of the film. We understood, for the most part, what had happened, why it had happened, and it was beautiful. And so he's one of those film directors. I mean, you might be surprised how many films um, are told so beautifully visually that you are not reliant on the dialogue to understand it. And he is one of those film Very directors, cool. especially in films like Red Sorghum and Raise the Red Lantern and other films where, mm. yeah, you know, the subtitles help. When people are talking, you want to know what they're saying. But um, but so much is being told visually. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think about that a lot. I sometimes think about, um, you know, you know, you know, I thought that I don't care about dialogue and wouldn't want to do that at all, but I just realized that my strength as a composer lends itself to try to make films where the music is so much part, of, more part of the storytelling than people are accustomed to. You know, why not right. play into my own personal strengths? Because I can therefore give you something unusual, something different um, that, that maybe only I can do. Uh, so... That's why I'm making another musicab. It's like, well, this is maybe not my niche, but certainly uh, right now it is a way to not only distinguish myself as having mm -hmm. a very specific uh, thing that I do that nobody else right. is doing, but also, you know, uses what I have to offer to the best of the abilities. You know, you know, I once had a... a this reminds me, in my, I, I studied acting and directing in NYU. So my final yep. year was all about doing directing, stage directing projects. I didn't act, I stage directed. And I okay. figured, since I'm also a composer and into music, that I should try to direct my own musicals or musical adaptations and things like that. And mm. I got dinged by the head of the, uh, the theater program, the drama program, because I didn't adapt an original text. Even when I had text and dialogue, it was something that I had adapted from Shakespeare or something like that. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I didn't do the usual things, but isn't it more important that I explored and tried stuff that only I can do? You know, yes. why did you want? Yeah, he, he was mad at me for not doing like he would have rather I had done a straight play, no music, and done what everybody else was doing. Yes. And he was angry at me for, because, he, you know, he said, you need to do something that has, that my, first two, my first piece was a musical, but it had dialogue and everything. My second piece mm -hmm. was an experimental musical piece where all the music was created in collaboration with the actors and it was all vocal. Okay. And he showed no appreciation for anything that was different there from the usual. He wanted me to do a oh, complete traditional thing. And then when I, rather than take an, a play that was written, I wrote a play based on Shakespeare's mm. sonnets, which had dialogue mm. and people interacting, but also music. He still said, yeah, but you didn't, you still wrote another original piece. You didn't adapt, you didn't just direct somebody else's place, and he thought that that was a demerit. And I was like, but I still did all the things you have to still do when you direct actors and when you direct scenes. It's like, why are you being so narrow-minded? <laughs> and I'm like, uh -huh. why are you asking me to do something? Why aren't you happy 
why aren't you pushing me to fulfill my individual abilities to the best of the structure of your program rather than stifling what makes me unique so that I do something like everybody else? And I, I just, yeah. that I feel is, is problematic. I want to, you know, not everybody should do the same thing. Everybody should figure out what they can do best and then do that well. Exactly. Yes, I agree with you. In fact, it is discouraging and discerning, really, to listen to somebody like that where they, they look at you and say, yes, we want you to do exactly this instead of going outside of the box or, or trying to elaborate more on something that's more creative or more interesting. Or Imagination is limitless. That's what I always say. So to use your imagination right. to the best and to be so, able to create something, isn't that what it should be? Right. And so if if I never direct a piece that is just straight drama, you know, and I only end up doing things that are musical. Well, uh-huh. maybe that is the best way to spend what I have to offer because that is sort of where all my abilities are allowed to maybe fire on all their cylinders. Right. You know, it doesn't mean I wouldn't be good at directing a straight drama and even one that doesn't have True. a musical score if that seems to be the right thing for that piece. You know, and maybe one day I'll do that because I'll it'll it'll fall on my lap or it'll come my way and I'm going to want to do it. Sure. But no. if I never do it, it's like I don't think it's going to be a huge loss. Yeah, I think it would Correct. be a huge loss if I didn't continue to try to put music and the visuals and everything that I can do together the best that only I can do. Because no one else is going to sure. make another poem musica probably if I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and the thing is, too, it's always exciting, um, almost elating to some degree to watch somebody whose profession is, typically I do this, to go way outside of the box, like you're saying, to direct a drama or like a thriller or um, a a romance or something along those lines, just Mm -hmm. to to branch out and be something a little different than what you normally are, of course. Um, I want to ask you about um, when we talk about Listen, by the way, your titles, I was adding them up. I'm like composer, writer, producer, director, actor, husband, friend, etc. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, out of all of those, everything I just listed of all your different jobs, mm-hmm. please tell us the one that you want to um, blossom or bloom or something that you just haven't developed enough yet that a year from now oh. you'd like to say, you know what, I'm much more proficient in this. Oh, uh, director, film director. And that's the one I'm ah. working on right now because I, I haven't, uh, yeah, um, I feel like I've got way, a lot more to grow and learn and do in that direction. And um, mm-hmm. not that I don't in the others either, but that's sort of the, the newest one and um, the one that I've had the least options to apply myself. You know, I've only made one short film. Um, I didn't right. get to study it. I studied animation in college, but I, I didn't. I didn't go for a double major drama film. I considered it, but it would have meant adding two more years to my college career, and I wanted to save my parents that financial strain, <laughs> you know, or save myself from the loans, you know. So I didn't. Sure. So um, I. Uh, so I've been, you know, making. I learned a lot making the first one. I feel like the potential of, of making a big leap as a visual director, as a film director, um, from the first to the second one is the potential is really there. Um I, I so my, um uh you know, there's 
see that the first one had its roots in a theatrical production. You know, that's where it came from. Right. That's where it came out of. It sure. was an adaptation of something that had originally been done on stage. And I didn't try to hide that in the filming of it. I tried to play with it and then do stuff that are purely cinematic in that process that you can't do on stage. But the the stage roots of the piece are noticeable. And I don't deny that. I didn't try to. This next one, there's going to be nothing stagey about it. It is. It was particularly. It was written specifically to be made as a film. It was. Mm-hmm. It was uh, when I adapted it um, this last November. When I thought about how I would crack the code, so to speak, of how to make this, I didn't think of it as okay. This is how I would do it on stage. Now this is how I'm going to do it in a film. I have no idea how I would do this on stage anymore. I couldn't do this on stage. It would not be physically possible unless you completely rethink it as a piece because I'm doing things that you can only do in film and both visually as well as musically and with the sound. I mean, just with my voice, I'm doing things uh, in the use of the human voice that are, that I discovered by accident making Telltale Heart and that I'm not going, cool, let's, let's do that in this film. You know, let's do this with the soundtrack. Um, so, you know, we're being in a room and having 5.1 surround sound as part of the experience of how this is going to work um, or, or, or having a surround sound theater environment, uh, movie theater environment. So mm-hmm. I'm already feeling like this is going to be a much more cinematic experience and going to push me much more, make me grow as a film director. And I want to continue growing. Um, I'm looking at these first two films very much as my apprenticeship as a film director, you know? Uh, So yeah, if you're going to ask me which of all these things do I feel like I want to grow the most or still need to grow the most, there's no question. Yeah. The the one that is the newest in my repertoire you know, film director. You betcha. When you look at his IMDb folks, by the way, because when you Google Danny, of course, and I'm not saying your name but once today, and you can't make me do it. Wait, folks, you'll see how I screwed up. Anyway, um, when you look at IMDb, you see the, the three different projects that are listed. Ironically, note that Danny did not mention that the majority of those are, are television projects. And you haven't spoken a lot about television, I've noticed. In fact, rarely. Because um, one was a TV series, right, and one was a TV uh, pilot, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so television, um, you seem to, to favor that as far as the IMDb side of things. So will we see more television from you? Because I, and maybe it's me and the actors I roll with, a lot of them aren't as keen on doing television anymore. I don't know if that, and that's before, of course, the pandemic hit. You know, television's a different element than film is, of course. And so how do you stand in terms of the television? And tell us a bit about the TV projects you've done. Well, uh, they're really far back in my past. I've Most of my adult life, I've, I've been in theater. Um, so that, right. uh, and, it's, and TV or film has been, you know, until now, until sort of deciding to produce it myself, has been not a big part of my life. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I have no, uh, you know, prejudices against the medium in that sense. And and for all I know, you know, if these music cubs go well, they might end up being a something that you stream through a streaming service on television and not something that you see in a movie theater anyway, and especially as a short mm-hmm. film, that, that they're more likely life, public life, after the film festival circuits 
is to be through some sort of streaming venue. Um, that would be the dream, really. I don't ex- unless someone wanted to make a, you know, put them together as an anthology film. You know, the, the Poe Musicabs. You know, ninety minutes of three Poe Musicabs, Tell Tell Heart, Pit in the Pendulum, mm-hmm. and then who knows what's next. You know, all That's that as right. an option. You know, right? This is I'm sort of trying to build towards something, but it, it's sort mm-hmm. of like uh, what I said before about one act or two act. It's like that's what's the project and and how do we best adapt it and and what is the best environment for it um and sometimes something flourishes as a movie you know and and sometimes something flourishes better as maybe a multi-part episodic television project whether it's miniseries or something else um and uh, and especially nowadays where, you know, movie-length or movie-like projects are made for streaming services are never, and you know, with the pandemic, even before the pandemic, and didn't necessarily go into a movie theater, but they're still filmed right. like a movie. They're still made movie. They still feel like a movie. The, um, the distinctions are not so great, and the, 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 the different ways we... Uh, find entertainment or content, if you want to call it that, and, and how we experience it and the different forms it can take, there, there are more options. People are less... You might remember growing up, you know, where there was like, okay, comedies were half an hour and they were actually 22 minutes, two minutes long because you had commercial breaks and they had a laugh track and they were mm-hmm. filmed with three cameras in front of a live studio audience and that was it. That was your sitcom. And then everything else was a drama show, which was an hour long, but that was actually 48 minutes with commercials, you know. And nowadays, there's, it's not that strict, you know. There are still those forms, but there are many other forms, and the comedy doesn't have to have a laugh track, and it doesn't have to be 28 minutes. It can be any length. And all of that, sure. I think, is for the better. You know, just what is the project and, and put it in the structure that will best make this work flourish and hopefully reach its ideal audience. Um, Absolutely. And that, and uh, I, you know, I don't want to limit myself by medium because the medium is just the place in which something can maybe grow and flourish. Um, but it, but it by itself is not so meaningful as, as, as a, Ooh, you know, and, and there was a time when like, if you were a TV actor, you would never be given a movie role and, pe- and movie people looked down on television and so forth. And all of that right. luckily is more in the past. And, Nowadays, you know, people are drawn to the project. What is the project and what do I get to be? How, what do I get to do in this project? And, and is that interesting sure. to me as an artist? And that is the important thing. And I think that is a much better value system to have um, ultimately. And I think also the audiences okay. are like, just what's the project? Do I want to see this? Do I want to be entertained by this. It doesn't really matter whether I watch it on my laptop or my TV or in a movie theater. I miss going to the movie theaters. It sucks that New York State still hasn't opened up their movie theaters. I wish they had. I think there would have been a safe way to do it, but I'll respect the decision, but I really, really miss it. I was an avid movie theater goer. I... I would go at least once a week, if not twice a week, to the movies in a theater. So I really miss it, but... But I'll survive. You know, I'll watch. Yeah. Oh no, all I, I have to, You know. But yep. uh, yeah, no, living I in New York and not being able to go to the movies—that. Oh, 
The killer. Yeah. True killer, absolutely. Now, that brings us to, of course, Hotel Heart. Now, first, folks, I have to mention to you that, in case we didn't, he won the Judy Garland Award, the very first Judy Garland Award given out of the Art of Live Film Festival for his well, project. That, you know that so, tickles me to no end. You know, I, like I yes. said, I should be saying I'm over the moon, but I'm actually over the rainbow. So, yes. <laughs> well, um, I, I have to ask. Very um, that a queer man got the first Judy Garland Award. I always just say. See, no, I wasn't going to say that, but he did. So there you go. Well. But no, I agree with you. It is very, very fitting and coincidental because it played no part in it. Queer or no queer, you earned it, and it was wonderful. But. I have to ask about this because oftentimes people listen to my show and then we talk a lot about, you know, those and laurels and wings and things like that. So mm-hmm. I like to get a, I like to get a creator standpoint on this because oftentimes they'll say, it's, you know, it's lovely to get the trophy, of course, et cetera, et cetera. However, just the idea that people are seeing it and embracing it and really believe it's that excellence is the tapper for you. So in your mind, does that trophy represent something a bit more than just a trophy itself? Or um, is it really more about the fact somebody, et cetera? Because not everybody needs to get laurels, although it's great to have it, especially Judy. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's interesting because, um, you know, Originally, or it was for the score of the film, if I understand correctly, you know, the musical scoring mm-hmm. of the film, yeah. and you had a pretty wide um, a variety of options. You included films that used, uh, you know, that, that had a compilation of songs that they didn't necessarily write, yes. but that they put together. So the, 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 yeah. it was a very wide um, net that was cast in terms of how you uh, uh, recognize the use of music in a film. You know, yes. other, uh, and that's, um, so it made, you know, makes for interesting bedfellows, too, in that case. But, um, sure. so, yeah, no, it, it meant more that you called it the Judy Garland Award. And that, that is, <laughs> you know, if, if you, I'm going to be honest, of course, that's just cosmetic. You know, you made a choice, you sure. gave it that name, and there it is. But, you know, I, I won several awards for my music. But yeah, this is the one I'm going to remember and have more fun dining out on than many other <laughs> others, you know. But, you know, so yeah, Yay. like I said, it tickles me to no end. It was fun to get something called the Judy Garland Award. I get a great mm-hmm. kick out of it. So yeah, um, neat. But you know, so yeah, the the rational part of me goes, you know, why well, should this count more than any other award you receive, Mr. Ashkenazi? Right. The other part goes, me, it was the Judy yes. Garland Award. No, you know, so what do you know? <laughs> You know, find find it's your joy me. where you can. You know, it, it made me happy. It, it gave me an extra kick, and so I appreciate that. Yeah. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And I know and it now made, of course, uh, people care about me happier. You know, they, you know, Aww. my friends or my family members, they see that I've been getting rewards for the film, and they they make note of it and so forth. But when I posted about the Judy Garland Award, it got a heck of a lot more attention. You know, so, yeah. It, oh, oh, absolutely. So it, it, that's how these things sometimes work. You know, you give, you, you, you gussy it up a little bit, people take more notice. Oh, you betcha. And to me, of course, obviously, and to those that have been to my festival and now you've been there, I'm always naming awards and giving away things to, to people of prominence. And not just necessarily all the way up as high as Judy Garland, per se, but there's always meaning behind it, of course. And so we're very right. proud that you won it, clearly. Um, Telltale Heart, for those of you that don't know, 
you must be living under a rock. I'm kidding. We all know what Telltale Heart is. But I want you to explain to your listening audience, because they weren't at the festival, some of them, tell the audience what makes your version of Telltale Heart stand out among the original. Well, um, for one, it's a musical adaptation. That's probably very original. I mean, there's been many, many adaptations of... um, of the Telltale Heart for stage and for screen, but this is probably the first, if or certainly one of the few, that is a musical adaptation. And I call it a musicab, um to put the word together, musical and macabre, as a portmanteau, but also because structurally it's it sort of is half musical, half chamber opera, stylistically, the way the music works. And... Um, mm-hmm. I, I wanted people not to have specific expectations. Like when they go in, you know, that's going to be the, the music they're going to hear is going to be a particular way. I wanted them to go, oh, this might be a little unusual, and that might make them put put them in the right mindset going in, you know. And right. also that there's a hint of humor in the term musicab, and there is a bit of humor in, in, in the Telltale Heart. That yeah. said, um, what also might distinguish this adaptation is that it might be one of the, it might in some ways adhere the closest to the original Edgar Allan Poe text, in which mm-hmm. I really, I didn't cut any of his t- language. I, um, it's all there from beginning to end, from the beginning words, true, nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, I had been an am. Yeah. To the end, it was yeah. the beating of his hideous heart. Um, mm-hmm. The only changes I made are sometimes a he had became a he'd. You know, I turn things I, just for rhythmic reasons. Musically, I sometimes added apostrophes and contractions. And um, right. there's only one sentence that I paraphrased. In the original Poe, I believe it is, I'm doing this off the top of my head now. I heard all things in the heavens. I heard, I heard all things in the earth. And no, no, no. The original was one sentence. I heard all things in the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. And I, for musical reasons, because I had a lovely melodic line that I wanted to repeat, I turned that to, I heard all things in heaven. I heard all things in earth. And that is a paraphrase. That's the worst okay. paraphrase I did. Um, other than that... I repeated a lot of posts, like true nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous, you hear about 20 times in my version, and I think he only said it twice yeah. in the original text. So that that's a repetition. And then there's one segment where um, I repeated the poll, but I added synonyms. So Poe mm-hmm. says, you should have seen how wisely I proceeded, with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. That's the original Poe. And then I created, you should have seen, proceeded with what, what is it, prudence, with what caution, with what um, consideration I played my part. I mean, I just created synonyms because I needed a second verse, but I did not want to repeat the same words. So that's, those are the liberties I took with Poe. Other than that, it's Poe's text from beginning to end, nothing cut. And I don't know if Others can say that for their adaptations, if they made a film of Telltale Heart, um, sure. I believe. So on the one hand, by making it a musical and doing all these other things, I took it into a you know, very original, a very unusual place. But on the other hand, right. I worked really hard to give you 
you know, almost 100% Poe, and then a little extra, but pretty much, you know, all the words. I didn't cut, um, you know. So I'm kind of proud of that, you know, of 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 uh, of, uh, of finding a way to make Poe sing in his original words, rather than right. feeling like I needed to rewrite him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and your version is so crisp and clear and unique and and honestly captivating. One of the things that our judges had talked about is just the ability to be able to keep one's attention because. It's a story that most people get caught up and say, we've seen it a hundred times, heard it a hundred times, read it over and over again. But if you bring new life and new energy to something, it's really revitalizing. Um, And your point on in terms of some of the things that you bring to the table with that. Also, we are up to, I know there was 25 nominations, 41. Are we at 43 or 45 wins at this point? Oh, um, you mean uh, for the film? Yes. Um, I think we're up to, actually, let me look it up. I'm going to just walk rather than take you doing this, <laughs> pulling it out of my rabbit hole. How about I just go to one. the old, good old, um, just go to IMDb and check it out. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I think it's 42 now. I think it's actually more already at this point, but uh-huh. it's 47. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so this is IMDb recognized. Um, 47 wins and 32 nominations. However, however, there's about, if you are on my page and you go to the trivia section, yes, which is, you will see that there's a whole bunch of awards and nominations that are not yet IMDb recognized and that I could not, therefore, that I had to list separately. Gotcha. Which um, which puts you up even higher. <laughs> yeah, it puts it, if you're going to count, if you're going to include those awards, yeah, I'm over sixty awards and I don't know how many nominations. Um, I'm trying to remember. Are you was I able to? You should. Yeah, somebody else asked me about mine, so I'm still working with I IMDb. You, I don't think not. you need to. No. You need to get Artists Alive recognized by IMDb because I was not able to uh, list you as an official IMDb awards screamium. I had to put you into the trivia yeah. section. Yeah, Diane, as a matter of fact, said the same thing too, and I've been working with IMDb. It wasn't an easy process for that because I was like, last year I was supposed to do it, and then they're like, no, you have to wait one more year, so this year we shouldn't be having troubles. But I knew you had to well, be up to let, somewhere near the 60 Yeah, months. then let me know. Yeah, here is the trivia section. Yep. Yeah. And if you, if there's 13 items in the trivia section. So each one is either what other, other places where I won awards or more than one award or where I've been nominated. Okay. And if I go down the list, it says, won the Judy Garland Award for Best Musical Score from Artists of Life Film ah. Festival 2020. So, That's so very cool. Look at that. And yeah. I saw so, you actually. You played at Fantastic Horror Film Festival. Those are friends of mine. I actually know Matt Jason and the people oh. that run that. So I thought, that's oh, cool. That, that's, yeah, that's the whole rest of the month they're still on, right? Fantastic Film uh, till the end say, of November. Think, yep, till the end yep. of November. And you were nominated for Best Music, I saw, for that. And mm-hmm. is your film, now is this still showing for free on um, So Free TV? Sophie TV, yeah, Sophie TV, the short film awards. They are um, 
They're right now this weekend, I think through Monday, if I understood their website correctly, they are showing all that are nominated films on a schedule, though. It's not just any, you you have to sort of tune in at the right time, depending on the film you want to watch. Ah. They've got the schedule on their website. And I posted on my blog when they're showing the nominated blocks, the blocks for the nominated films for which I am nominated. I'm in three different blocks. I'm nominated for three Sophie Awards. So there are different times when you can catch the Telltale Heart through Sophie TV. So if you go to their website or my website, you can uh, track that down. But, yeah, you've got a couple options between now and Monday to catch Telltale Heart that way for free. Yeah. Gotcha. Very, very nice. My goodness. So I guess my only other question to you is this, moving mm-hmm. forward in 2021, tell me something yeah. that we know for a fact that we're going to come up. What's your, outside of the, the new project, is there something else that's coming out or something that you're trying to hide or uh, some little tidbit you can give us for 2021? Something outside the box you're going to try. At least I hope oh, there's dear. something. <laughs> Please say there's one thing. Um, maybe. <laughs> I don't know yet. Uh, He's like, I'll think of uh, something. No, it's okay if you don't yet. I mean, 2020 was rough. I mean, you have to get through this year and then, you know, get to next year and kind of see where things go from that point. Oh, uh, I, I yeah. there are things I would like to do. Um, I have plans that I'd like to, like, next steps I'd like to take that, that um, for both as a filmmaker and my music, but um, I'm not sure what will be possible, but mm-hmm. if I can, um, if I can, I would like to do something with the Langston Hughes piece that was, uh, call it a docu-musical. I'll say nothing more, oh. just leave you that phrase, docu-musical. A whole oh, new very, very cool. hybrid artistic form. <laughs> <laughs> we just created something new as we were talking right here. How exciting is that? Well, no, we always like to hear what's happening. I, I maybe shouldn't have said it out loud, but there it is. I just did. <laughs> he just did. He just went there, folks. Thank you very much. Now, mm-hmm. um, I I want to do a couple of different things because at the end, I was just going to say they were going to try to cut us off, but I don't think they will. So I want to go off and I want to be able to read all of your social media so that everybody knows how to find you. That's number one. Right. And then, um, so we have. The following, you are on IMDb, Facebook, which is personal page plus notes from a composer, LinkedIn, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, and of course your website, which is www.dannyashkenasi.com. That's dannyashkenasi.com. Did I miss anything? Yeah. No, that website is called. No, you didn't. That that's that's all correct. Okay. That's the main thing. The website is the main thing. It's called Notes from a Composer, but it is www.dannyashkenazi.com, and um, and on the Facebook thing, uh, yeah, the main thing is also the Notes from a Composer uh, Facebook page where I, uh, and I'm on Twitter, Danny Ashkenazi. It's my name, but yeah, it's yeah. the the crazy spelling of my name. <laughs> Look how cool that is. My God. We actually talked 90 minutes, and now they actually are going to cut us off. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. 90 minutes? I don't even think we talked that long. It was just like you just got on, and here we are. Here we are. Mm Mm-hmm. Here we are, nonetheless. So 
Well, thank you for having me. Satisfaction. And it, no, thank you for coming on. And please come back again. I mean, make no mistake, you have an open invitation to come back anytime you'd like to be on the show. Cool. Love that. Sure. You're a wonderful guest. I mean, you really are. All right. Thank you. And give me two hours or so. And this is an archived episode, just so you know, and, and the people listening in. So I'll send you the copy from Blog Talk Radio, and then I'll send you cool. a YouTube channel, and you can put both of those up. And then, of course, we'll be in contact with, I, I think, the uh, interview, and then, oh, distribution, because I think we talked about that, but I think that's the last thing, and we're all set. Okay, cool, great. Sounds good. And yeah, you enjoy your Friday. You. I'm off to go hang with my kid. Have a wonderful weekend, dear. I'll see you soon, you too. hopefully. Okay, All right. Great. bye-bye. Bye-bye.